Welcome to the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast, the podcast for special educators who are looking for personal and professional development. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Reeve. For more than 20 years, I've worn lots of hats in special education, but my real love is helping special educators like you. This podcast will give you tips and ways to implement research-based practices in a practical way in your classroom to make your job easier and more effective. Welcome back, and I am so glad that you have joined us again. We are talking about behavior, which I know is an issue for many of us in special education classrooms. I am Chris Reeve. I'm your host. And up to now, we've taken our data, we have gathered all of our information, and today we're going to start getting to the good stuff because we're starting to get to the point where we're going to look at why in the world is this behavior happening in the first place and what are we going to do about it. And so if you go over to the blog at autismclassroomresources.com slash episode 13, one three, then you will be able to download a free template that will give you the process that I use for creating hypothesis statements that develop directly into behavior plans. You also will see a number of visual examples that I obviously cannot give you on a podcast. So that may give it a little bit, make it a little bit easier. So you can go to the blog post and you can see all the different examples of hypothesis statements, download the template, and you'll also be able to download a transcript or read this if you would rather make sense of it that way. It gets a little interesting when I start to talk about these things without any visuals, because you know how I love visuals. So let me give you just a quick disclaimer as well. I'm going to give you hypothesis statements in this podcast, and I'm going to kind of give you a summary of the information about the student's behavior. It's going to sound like those in, those instances came from one instance, but they didn't. We have to triangulate all of our information, our information from staff, our information from families, our data collection, our record review, all the things we've talked about up until this point are going to go into that hypothesis statement. So they are all very important. And I'm going to pick up from where we've triangulated all that information. We've got some idea about some setting events. We've seen what happens before. We've seen what happens afterwards and put it in kind of a compilation. So it isn't as easy as I make it sound because as I often say, human behavior is just not simple. Um, But when you just hear me talk about it, the cases kind of sound like I'm just picking out one instance. I'm not picking out a single episode of behavior. I'm using a composite of all the different information. So let's get started. We're now moving into step three in our five-step process of meaningful behavioral support, and that is really developing our hypothesis statements. Now, keep in mind that a hypothesis is a best guess. We don't know that this is what's actually driving the behavior until we confirm our hypothesis. And I'll be talking about that later in the series and how we can do that, because you can do it when you develop them and you can test them more likely you will develop interventions that address them and see if they work when we're within a school setting. 
we want to make sure that when we are developing our hypothesis statements, that we are clearly tying them to the data, that we're not getting lost in our interviews and things like that. We want to make sure that we're accounting for that interview and that less objective information, but that we are making sure that our data is solidly supporting our hypotheses. That's why we took it. Writing our hypothesis statements is critical to the success of the intervention plan because they should lead you to what your behavioral solutions are going to be. And in the blog post that goes with today's podcast, you will find a download that you can get that actually structures your hypothesis statements. One of the things that I like about using this hypothesis statement structure is I can take my antecedent information and my setting event information and put it in one block. Then my behavior goes in the next block and how the environment is responding or what's happening in the environment comes afterwards. So it's very easy to take my ABCs and translate them into this. I can then take this setup and say, when this happens, he is likely to engage in this behavior. And in the environment, this commonly happens. If that's what my data trends are telling me, That then allows me to take those antecedents and make adjustments to the environment so that we can prevent the behavior from happening. It allows me to know, does he start off with smaller behaviors that should be an indicator to me that something bigger is coming, that I should intervene earlier? And it lets me know what do we need to change about how we react or respond to the envi- to the behavior or what's happening in the environment after the behavior so that we can reduce the reinforcement to it. And all of that gets directly mapped onto the hypothesis from the hypothesis statement. So go to autism classroom resources slash episode 13 and download the hypothesis statement uh, graphic, and it will walk you through how to put that together. And you can also download a transcript. And you can also read this post if you'd rather do that rather than listening. So let's talk for a few minutes about what goes into your hypothesis statement. One is the setting events. So that leads us to how do we eliminate or reduce the impact of distant factors that might influence the behavior. So our setting events in our hypothesis, he is more likely to engage in this behavior when X, Y, and Z tell us we need to address X, Y, and Z in some way. Now, as we said in episode 11, we cannot always make X, Y, and Z go away. If I could make you sleep through the night, I'd do it. But I do know that maybe I can modify what I ask you to do on a day when you didn't sleep well at night or a day that you don't feel well or a day that you didn't take your medicine. Maybe I modify my demands. Maybe I have you participate in group activities less. And that's where that brainstorming process that we'll talk about when we get to intervention plans becomes really key. But your setting events are going to tell you what you need to try to accommodate for if you cannot change it. Your antecedents are going to lead us to to know exactly how to restructure the environment to prevent the behavior. 
our behavior tells us whether or not the form of the behavior is relevant to the function. So does he only scream and get attention, but when he hits, people ignore him? Probably would happen the other way around, but uh, it is the form related to the function. Most of the time it's not in my experience, but it is possible that you will have a student that engages in one kind of behavior because people maybe come to him and another type of behavior because it gets people to go away. The consequence tells us what might be maintaining the behavior. So we need to know how we need to change our response to try to prevent the behavior from increasing over time. So when we use the graphic organizer for the hypothesis statements, we have three boxes. When the student, and we fill that in, he will, that's the behavior, and as a result, this happens. And the setting events kind of go over that. So when put in, when this situation is in place, when this student does this, or encounters this, he engages in this behavior, and this is what happens in the environment. So to give you an example of a hypothesis, when the student, so when faced with situations with social or academic demands, particularly those involving language. So very specific, I've been able to take my data and say this almost always happens in situations with social or academic demands, so not other kinds of demands, and those that involve making him practice language-related tasks are much more likely to have problem behaviors. The behavior is, when faced with those situations, he sometimes, because it's not every single time, hits, screams, and or bites others. And then what happens as a result, he is sometimes removed from the situation, the task is delayed by the behavior, or staff provides assistance in completing the task. And those are all consequences that often differ based on what situation he's in and what setting he's in and things like that. But they were common consequences to this behavior that basically kept him from having to do the activity or delayed it in some way. Now, that's a whole lot more descriptive than a function that just says he engages in this behavior to escape. Because now I know when he's faced with situations with social or academic demands, and particularly those involving language, we need to maybe include more easy tasks in with our hard, with our language demands. We need to give him maybe more breaks during that time. We know what his behavior is, and he does a constellation of behavior. There's not one specific form of behavior related to this situation. And then we need to give him a way to replace this, because it is an escape. We need him a way to ask for a break because the result of his behavior is having to be removed or having the task be delayed. It's essentially is escape related. So we want to make sure that we've got a replacement behavior that focuses on that. And we will talk about a in a whole episode about replacement behaviors, because they aren't often what many people think they are. But back to task. So you can see how that gives me much more specific information about where I'm going to address my behavior intervention plan. Uh, Now, I may get even more specific. I may say something like, 
James appears to engage in challenging behavior to escape from tasks that are difficult for him. Some of these tasks are work-related, some may be overwhelming or difficult socially, and some may be things that are frustrating for him like waiting. Engaging in significant challenging behaviors serves to gain assistance or removal from these situations effectively. You may also have James sometimes engages in challenging behavior to protest or express frustration about what not being allowed to have something that he wants. So we know what situations he's likely to have the problem in. And we also know that his behavior is complex. And you've heard me say this throughout this series. Human behavior isn't simple and rarely, except in very young children, occasionally, but rarely do we see behavior serving only one function. Very frequently we see it having maybe a a main function, but also another function. So often we will see a student who engages in behavior to escape, but when you give him just a break where nobody interacts with them, you continue to see problems because that behavior was also to get attention. So it got him out of the task and it got people engaging with him together. So never think when you're writing your hypothesis statements that you have to be limited to one function. We will have to pick what we're going to do when we get to the behavior plan based on that. So our setting events factor into when the student section of the hypothesis and they help us explain why behaviors happen on one day in relation to an antecedent and on another day they don't. So James's data indicated that the behaviors occurred on some days and not on others, and further investigation into the data showed us that days on which he hadn't had his medicine were more likely to result in challenging behavior. Now, one solution, make sure he always takes his medicine. We may be able to do that, um, and I've certainly had students that we've said, you know what, send his medicine to school, we're happy to give it to him first thing in the morning if they're having a hard time getting it to him. Sometimes even at school, James wouldn't necessarily take his medicine. He'd put it in his mouth. He'd spit it out. He'd spit it out meh, 20 minutes later. We'd find out he hadn't taken it. Uh, another solution, factor it into his program and the hypothesis statements. On days when James has not had his medication he is, and he is presented with a language task, he is likely to engage in these behaviors, which then result in being removed from the task. So maybe on the days when we know he hasn't taken his medicine, we adjust our demands so that we might lower that antecedent that sets that behavior off. So let's look at a few other examples for different kinds of functions. So let's look at Sammy. And Sammy's data, one of his instances is uh, when Sammy has been to more group activities during a day, these behaviors are more likely to occur. When Sammy checks his schedule and sees the teacher icon, he falls on the ground and screams. Sometimes he does this when he transitions out of the room for assembly and group activities. So this is kind of my summary of what we see in his data. Sammy screams and cries. When the staff tries to redirect him, he screams louder. If given the opportunity to go to a quiet area and calm down, he stops screaming and he's calm. And the outcome is if staff moves him to the work table or the upcoming activity, his behavior continues. So that tells us that when we look at Sammy's behavior, 
Sammy appears to engage in challenging behaviors to escape from tasks that are difficult for him. Some of these tasks are work-related, some may be overwhelming or difficult socially, and some may be things that are frustrating for him like waiting. Engaging in significant challenging behavior serves to gain assistance or removal from these situations effectively. Sammy is more likely to engage in these behaviors when he's had a lot of group work during the day. So I put my setting event kind of at the end of that one, but you can see it's obviously an escape from work and social situations. That is the real underlying function. But I now know that there are certain tasks that I need to adjust to prevent the behaviors. I can teach him a way to escape appropriately as a replacement behavior. And my outcome needs to be that the behavior doesn't get him out of the task as quickly as the replacement behavior. And we'll talk about all of that more when we talk about behavior support plans. But I want you to understand how it all lines up. Let's think about Simon. Simon has had several instances talking to his friends in the atrium of the high school. And suddenly, in the middle of the conversation, he started telling the other kids that he was going to kill them. The other kids left him alone and went to tell the teacher. So let's think about the function for Simon or the hypothesis. When presented with unstructured social interactions, which is when Simon is in the atrium of the school, there's nobody there setting up interactions, Simon's violent threats have been successful in extricating him from the social situation and escaping from the social demands. So what we're saying is that he is trying to escape social situations, unstructured social situations, set him up to have these behaviors. And this is a very efficient manner of getting people to leave him alone. So I now know that maybe I need to structure his social interactions a little bit more. I need to teach him a better way to get people to leave him alone more appropriately. And then we need to work on probably some underlying social skills as part of that as well. Let's look at Jimmy. Jimmy was playing with the other kids on the playground and they were playing horse with the basketball. And when it was Jimmy's turn, he missed the basket. The other kids told him he got the letter S and the teacher heard Bobby tell him better luck next time and slap him on the back. Okay, very common. Hey, I'm trying to make you feel better kind of activity, kind of behavior. Jimmy then hit Bobby and they got into a fight. When the playground supervisor asked what happened, Jimmy told her Bobby was bullying him. When we looked at Jimmy's data, we found a large pattern of difficulty in social situations as the antecedent and that he was interpreting the perspectives. When we talked to other kids that he was accusing of bullying him or fighting with them, he would tell them that he, that they had done something. And all of the things that he described were things that from the perspective of the person who did them, they were meant to be supportive, not problematic. So in knowing Jimmy and everything we know about Jimmy, we know that Jimmy has significant difficulty interpreting the perspectives of others and therefore understanding their intentions in his environment. He frequently interprets their behavior as a negative action toward himself. So when presented with an action, he interprets it negatively and he responds in a way to escape from that situation. So he gets removed from the situation because he's fighting. It gets him removed from that difficult situation. And so 
we've got an escape from social situations, but there's an underlying setting event of not understanding the perspectives of other people. And this is something we see a lot with our students with autism, uh, that that social piece is a big piece, but it's also something I see a lot with students who have other types of disabilities other than autism, where people aren't necessarily picking up on the social thinking and the social perspective piece of it because they don't have that diagnosis. So keep that in mind as we're working with some of our emotionally, students with emotional disturbances and things like that. All right, let's look at two more. It's time for Jimmy to be doing some math seat work. And instead he gets up and he runs to the computer. He sits down and when the teacher tries to move him back to his desk, he throws himself on the floor and kicks her. So in this case, we've got a kid who clearly wants something that he can't have. It's time to do work. And so he's going to that thing that he wants and he's behaving this way until it ends up being his turn. So we've got an obtaining function of a tangible item. Jimmy is highly interested in the computer. When presented with a situation in which he has to wait his turn on the computer, he falls on the floor and kicks and screams until it is his turn. Now let's look at one that has an automatic function because I think that's a really hard one to focus on. Abe engages in a variety of repetitive movements throughout the day, including hitting his forehead and head with his hand. He will engage in these behaviors when there are no demands and there is no one to attend to him. These behaviors appear more frequently during downtime and appear to provide some type of internal reinforcement. So they occur more likely when people are not around and the staff report that he seems calmer after he hits himself. So that's kind of a summary of Abe. So our automatic reinforcement hypothesis might be when asked to wait or left to work independently or without someone specifically engaging him. Because remember, we can only have an automatic function if it would happen when nothing else is there and no one is around. Because that means no, there are no other factors. That's the way we rule it out. It can't simply be, we don't know what the function is, so we think it's automatic. It's automatic, which some people call a sensory function. I think that's a little misleading. Uh, And I talk about all of that in our episode on functions, which I'll link in the show notes. But we really want to make sure that our antecedent is that he's kind of left alone with nothing to do. The behavior is that he frequently hits his head with his fist. And following this behavior, his demeanor appears calmer. If stopped, he'll begin to hit himself harder and scream. So that's kind of our consequence for that behavior. So our hypothesis might be Abe engages in a variety of repetitive movements throughout the day, including hitting his forehead and head with his hand. He will engage in these behaviors when there are no demands and there is no one around to attend to him. These behaviors appear more frequently during downtime and appear to provide some type of internal reinforcement. His demeanor appears calmer after completing them. So that tells us that if we leave Abe alone, we need to give him something to do that he will engage with, because that's going to be, not having that is going to be a trigger for the automatic self-injury behavior. We know that when he does this, we need to engage him in something so that the behaviors decrease rather than simply trying to stop him. So this then leads us to what our behavior support plan is. 
So I want to finish just with a few do's and don'ts about hypothesis statements. You want to make sure that you do include as much information as possible. I realize that when I talk about hypothesis statements, some people will think that they're kind of wordy, but I find that wordy to be a good summary of the function of the behavior that can lead us directly into our behavior support plan. And I'll talk in our next episode of how we do that. Only describe what you can see and observe. And we talked about that when we talked about the data collection. And so I'll link to that episode. But earlier in the series, we talked about the fact that if I can't see it, I don't know that it's happened. And so I really have to focus on the behaviors that I see. You want to make sure that we do include our setting events into our hypothesis statements because they are things we're going to have to address in our behavior support plan. And we need to verify our hypotheses. And so one thing that we can do is set up a situation similar to the thing that we think is setting off and reinforcing the behavior and see if it happens. So if it's if the behavior is not self-injurious or really dangerous, then we could actually set up situations, take data and see if the behavior occurs in the situations that we think that they do. Another thing that we can do is develop a behavior support plan that we know is tightly tied to our hypotheses and take data to see whether or not the behavior continues. That then, if it does continue, that then confirms our hypothesis. If it does continue, then it tells us we need to go back and relook at our hypothesis. So we can use our intervention as our way to verify our hypotheses, but it's critical when we do that, that we make sure that our hypothesis statements and our behavior support plans are very tightly linked. And this format that you can download on the blog page actually will give you that, that linkage. So let's talk about some things you shouldn't do with your hypothesis statements. Don't get misled by the form of the behavior. Don't assume that because somebody is biting or um, eating things that they're not supposed to have, that it is an automatic reinforcer. Those behaviors can have outward impacts on an antecedents as well. So just because it involves a sense does not mean it's a sensory function. Don't assume functions. I think a lot of times we assume the automatic function or the sensory function because we can't see what the pattern is, but that's not really a valid way to make that decision as I've talked about earlier. Don't assume that a behavior has only one function. Very frequently, behavior has more than one function and you might have more than one hypothesis. So you might have more than one hypothesis that describes the range of behaviors that the student is showing or the range of situations that the behaviors are occurring in. And don't stop taking data. Now, you don't necessarily need to continue to take ABC data unless you really don't know what your functions are. So if you haven't been able to come up with a hypothesis statement, you need more data. If you have a hypothesis statement, take that, make sure you've got solid baseline data of how often behaviors are occurring now. You can do that if you've been taking ABC data throughout the day. You can do that by adding up your incidents. Then look at taking something like frequency data or duration data to monitor your plan. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. But it's important that we don't stop taking the data just because we've developed our hypothesis.
So I will be back next week and I will talk more about designing behavior support plans and how we take this information and actually turn it into something that actually may change the behavior of the student in your classroom, which I know is the piece that all of you have been waiting for. But you have to have these pieces in place in order to get to that place. So that will be our next topic. And I will give you some examples and uh, we'll kind of walk through how do you take this information and turn it into that. If you would like to do a bigger deep dive into behavioral problem solving, I highly encourage you to check out the Special Educator Academy. Uh, That is where you'll find me. I'm available in our forums to answer questions, provide support. uh, And also our behavioral course has a wide variety of data sheets, strategies, videos, and information about this entire process and hopefully pulls it all together. And then when there are questions about it, people can come to the community and ask them. And we're all working off of the same page. You can find more information about the Special Educator Academy at specialeducatoracademy.com. Come try our free seven-day trial and see if it's for you. Thank you so much for spending this time for me with me. I really appreciate it. I hope that this has been helpful in giving you some ideas about formulating hypotheses for your students. And I hope to see you again in our next episode. 